Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show, all about movies. You're listening to The Jam Price Show, all about movies, and today my guest is award-winning filmmaker Sandra Schulberg, and we're going to be talking about filmmakers for the prosecution. Welcome to the show, Sandra. Thank you. Great having you here. This is a fascinating documentary. I've had many, 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 many shows about the Holocaust, and through the years, through my six and a half years of doing this show, and it's always been a topic that's been extremely near and dear to my heart, anything to do with World War II, but particularly the Holocaust. So this was a very fascinating film, and I have many questions for you. So our listeners know, what is Filmmakers for the Prosecution about? And then we'll dig into a deep dive. Filmmakers for the Prosecution is the thrilling story of how motion pictures were used for the first time in history as a form of legal evidence in a court of law. They were used specifically to convict some of the highest ranking Nazis at the first Nuremberg trial. And the story of filmmakers for the prosecution is really the behind the scenes, how these films were located, how they were how, how they were sabotaged along the way, and how ultimately they succeeded in certainly changing the mood of the courtroom. And I think I would say, and others would say, changing in a way the course of the trial itself. Well, it definitely did that. But it was a detective story. I mean, really how this came about. So let's talk about because your father and your uncle, Bud Schulberg and Stuart, Stuart, right, is your your father, Schulberg. Talk about how they got asked to do this project to begin with, because it was daunting. It was absolutely daunting. It was. It was Bud and Stuart Schulberg, my father, Stuart, and my uncle Bud were somehow found themselves and we're still trying to sort this out entirely. But they found themselves assigned to John Ford's field photographic branch at the OSS. Ford was, as I'm sure your listeners know, a very already a very famous movie producer with strong Irish roots. But he became known for making especially extraordinary westerns, and he was a famous sailor also. Mm. So he joined the navy. He was made a commander. He was made head of this special film unit of the OSS. The OSS being the Office of Strategic Services, which was our wartime spy agency. During the war, the OSS deployed spies all over, but they also made training films for spies. And both my uncle Bud and Father Stewart were part of that internal film making and film writing team making these training films for spies. How how they both got there, I mean, it's true that because they were the sons of my grandfather, B.P. Schulberg, who was, was head of Paramount Studios in the 20s and 30s. So John Ford was a friend of the family. I mean, he watched, in a way, he watched these young men grow up. And I think that is why they ended up being recruited to the OSS film unit, as did other Hollywood. Their colleagues and some of them became close friends of our family. Bob Parrish, who went on to be a very well-known Hollywood editor and director. Joe Zygman, who worked so 
subsequently on the film about the trial that my father directed. Bob Webb, all of these people were, Ray, Ray Kellogg, who was head of the unit, was from 20th Century Fox and went back to Fox after the war. They were all young men, but already skilled. And they were given this unique assignment, which was to find and then use motion pictures and still photographs to support the four counts of the indictment and the actual prosecution of the top men at the first Nuremberg trial. And they were working under tremendous time pressure, as you note, because originally the trial was supposed to start in September. So my father was the first one. He and Daniel Fuchs, a writer who later went on to write a number of extraordinary novels, but he and Daniel Fuchs were sent over first in June of 1945 to sort of start the reconnaissance. And then Bud and the editors followed a couple of months later. And because they were winnowing through film in New York, it was only after they'd done all that, that Jackson and his team of lawyers said, we're not going to let you use any film that had already made its way to the United States, because the defendants and their lawyers could claim that it had been tampered with. So they, in a way, with at that time, the trial looming in September 1945, they were really scrambling to try to find new footage in Germany and the territories that had been occupied by Germany, and then having to not just find it, but organize it in such a way that it could be actually useful to the prosecutors. And at the same time as part of that process, as my uncle recounts, he found in one case what he described as acres of film burning in this one salt mine, and then another fire at another location that somehow seemed too coincidental to be unrelated to the fact that this footage could be perhaps incriminating. Mm -hmm. This is a pretty exciting story. I mean, yes, it is about the Holocaust very directly in that all of this material was being collected and edited in order to present in the courtroom. But it's also kind of just a thrilling story about finding film treasure in the most unlikely of places, as you see in the film. And sometimes totally by chance, sometimes by the extraordinary luck. I mean, Bud tells this really extraordinary story about, again, towards the end, meeting the head of his counterpart, the head of the Russian film search project, because the Russians also showed films in the courtroom to support the indictments that they were responsible for. And Bud met this major Avenarius and discovered immediately that he was a huge fan of John Ford, had written two books about John Ford and became entranced with Bud because Ford was their commanding officer, ended up sharing a huge, huge trove of material that the Russians had found because, of course, they were the ones who liberated and occupied Berlin. And that was where the major film studio was. So they had found all kinds of material that had been stashed there. I describe it as a fun film, even though it's about such, it's about the Shoah. I mean, it's about one of the greatest tragedies in human history and it's and there's there are horrifying images in the film that they found there are horrifying stories behind these images but it is also kind of an adventure story definitely is it's a detective story all along the way too and it really is intriguing i love that story that you just shared about john ford i mean what are the chances that 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 they would meet someone who had written books about john ford i mean of all the serendipity in the world. I mean, that's what is so wonderful about life, because you never know who you're going to
going to meet when you need to meet them. And it's just how whatever we want to say, the universe or whatever works underneath to make things happen. And that is one of those amazing stories in this film, as there are others, because it's almost like the Germans were one step ahead of them before they got, but they got there, but somebody was always willing to help them. That in itself is pretty amazing. Did your father ever talk to you about this when you were growing up? No, you know, that's one of the things I so regret. And I say to your audience, if you have elderly parents, talk to them about the parts of their lives that you weren't around for. You know, what happened before you came along? Because I think we tend to be, it's natural to be kind of egocentric. And I think so many people, and I include myself, missed extraordinary opportunities. But I was very interested in, and kind of participated in my father's career as a as a young woman and was fascinated by it. But I was also embarking on my own career. Nuremberg was not, it was just not present really in our lives. So it was only when my mother died and my brothers and I discovered this enormous treasure trove of materials that he had kept for all the years up until he died in 1979. And then my mother had saved until her death in 2002. And it was just an extraordinary discovery to find boxes and boxes of really unique documents, plus 300 pages of typewritten letters that he had sent to my mother. They were newly married and very much in love. And so Stuart just took hours out of every day, it seems, to write her exactly what was going on all during the search process. And, and then I must say, once she was allowed to join him in Germany, which was not until October 1947. So during the trial, I should back up and say wives were not allowed. So although there were a few secret wives, they were lawyers. There weren't many women lawyers at the Nuremberg trial, but there were a couple. And if they, if Justice Jackson didn't know that they were married to another lawyer on the team, they went sort of incognito. But in general, no wives were allowed. So, but after the trial ended, and my father was then hired by the War Department to make the official U.S. documentary about the trial. Well, sometime about a year after that, they finally permitted my mother to join him. And so he stopped writing letters to her at that point, but she started writing equally detailed typed letters to her parents, who were quite sophisticated. And so she was writing at a very high level. And we have all of her letters. So, And she was writing about Stuart's work and about her own work there as a kind of volunteer film projectionist in Berlin during this whole denazification period. So it's quite an amazing archive, really. It really and then Bud was still alive when I started all this. So I did have the chance to talk with him and he jogged his memory and we found things that he had written at the time. And I tried to incorporate all of that in the booklet that I wrote. And it was really based on that that Jean-Christophe became the director. Jean-Christophe Klutz became interested in trying to tell this story on film. Yes, there's so many questions because in the film, you are in, I don't know, it looks like a stockroom, basically, or probably another office or whatever. And there's all these shelves and boxes yeah. and, and it's just filled to the brim yeah. of information mm-hmm. during this time. I mean, it, I looked at it, went, how daunting that must have been to figure out where do I begin with all of this? And it, it was why? Really <laughs> it was, that, that was my studio in Los Angeles, which I still 
have. And that was where I, I moved this archive after we emptied my mom's loft. And it was daunting because I was a movie producer. I wasn't a historian. I wasn't an expert on the cinematography of the Holocaust. I came to this project, or I should say it landed on me because of this legacy. And once I learned that Stewart's film had been actively suppressed in the United States, I learned partly by going through the documents, but I would say that Ray Farr, who was then the director of the Steven Spielberg Film and Video Archive of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, Ray was the first American scholar who came and looked at my father's papers. This was before I moved them to L.A. I had put them in a whole collection of notebooks in kind of glassine sleeves and in chronological order because that I knew how to do. And and I thought, well, that's at least then we'll be able to kind of start deciphering the story. If everything is in chron order, let's approach it that way. Let's try to figure out what this documents and letters are telling us. And Ray came up from Washington to sit with me and go through these documents. And then she was the one who first shared with me these three extraordinary stories from the Washington Post, which I, I later found the original clippings that my father had kept, very yellowed and wrinkled and partly torn. But there were three extraordinary stories written in the Washington Post in September of 1949. By that time, the film had been released in Germany and certain people who were very knowledgeable about the trial, people like John Gunter and other sort of journalists, historians, were starting to ask, where was this film? They knew the film had been made. They had been in the courtroom. They'd seen the cameras and they were asking, where is this film? Why aren't we seeing this film in the U.S.? So the Washington Post dived into this and they did three kind of exposés about what they characterized as kind of the scandal of the film being suppressed. So as I learned about the suppression of the film, I gradually decided, and I had early support from Steven Spielberg and his Righteous Persons Foundation, to figure out how to tell this story and restore the original film, restore the film that had been suppressed in the United States. So that was the first, I would say that was the first iteration of my now 10, 12, 12 years, 15 years of work on this project was first figuring out, going through the documents, trying to decipher what story they told, understanding why and how the film had, the, the resulting film about the trial had been suppressed in this country, determining that it should be restored, raising the money to do that, doing that work with Josh Waletsky, then trying to write, my Uncle Bud and I were working on a book about all this that he wanted to call the Celluloid News but then we lost Bud in the process. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a booklet, a 130-page booklet that I called Filmmakers for the Prosecution, which was actually Ray Farr's title. I credit her with that fantastic title. And that was the first attempt to try to tell the story to the wider public, along with the Blu-ray and DVD of the restoration. Then Jean-Christophe comes along and says, let's try to make a film about the making of the two films films shown by the Americans in the courtroom 
and the resulting film about the trial. It's a very complicated story, and I, I don't blame people for being for finding it confusing because we have within the courtroom were shown the two films they assembled, the OSS team assembled, Nazi concentration camps, and then a long, much longer film entirely composed of, of footage shot by German camera teams called The Nazi Plan. Then the film about the trial is called, that my father wrote and directed, is called Nuremberg, It's Lesson for Today. And now we have Filmmakers for the Prosecution, which rides above all those films and tries to explain that whole story to to people. So I'm grateful to Jean-Christophe that he found a way to to do this in in quite an, you know, an entertaining way. Oh, he has. I mean, it is fascinating to go into this deep dive. Wow. I mean, maybe the Nuremberg trials would have turned out completely different if they didn't have this archival footage to show and how they changed the way they were going to present the material. It was also very interesting because I think, you know, as the trial was going on, they realized maybe we need to show this sooner rather than later. And that was also fascinating to watch. My question is, why did the U.S. government decided to suppress this film? I would like to answer that, but I first just want to comment on what you just said. You know, we cannot credit the films for the fact that over 13 Nuremberg trials, because this film and the film my father made before that, focus entirely on the first trial. And that the first trial was the only international trial, which was prosecuted jointly with the Soviets. And that's part of the story of why the film was suppressed. But our allies were this in the prosecution of the top Nazi war criminals were the Soviets, the Brits, and the French. So there were four prosecution teams at Nuremberg and four major indictments. And each of those teams specialized in one of the indictments or Sometimes they would split up a particular indictment and legal teams from two countries would handle different parts of one indictment. But the films are what created the lasting legacy because very, 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 very few people have read the transcripts, which are published in an enormous set of books. That Very few people have read the transcripts from the first Nuremberg trial, let alone the 12 others that followed. So the films, even though they were tangential evidence, but they were very graphic evidence because as Eli Rosenbaum says in Filmmakers for the Prosecution, you know, people could not imagine, everyone, as he says, can imagine somebody holding you up, pointing a gun at your chest, but people cannot really imagine the mass slaughter of millions of human beings. So he and Justice Jackson and others felt that there was a unique role for these motion pictures to play in a court of law. The question you ask about why the resulting film about the trial was was suppressed is is complicated. I mean, on the the Washington Post couldn't get anyone to go on record at the War Department or the State Department or anybody else. But one of the things that one of the quotes that they repeated printed from an anonymous informant was it's time to forget about the Nazis and concentrate on the Reds. Mm -hmm. And in a way that certainly sums up very co 
unfortunately, one of the reasons why this film was deemed to be politically incorrect by the time it was finished in 1948, because the Soviets were blockading Berlin, and suddenly our wartime allies were turning into our Cold War enemies. So this was an ideological battle, and the film didn't fit that new political parameter. But on the other hand, we know that Justice Jackson and Per Lorenz, who had been at the War Department and hired my father to make the documentary about the trial and others, were very keen to have this film shown to American audiences. And we found a fascinating letter from the head of publicity at Universal Pictures, which indicates that they did send a print out there in the hopes that Universal might be interested in distributing the film. And he writes back, the images in this film were so gruesome that they literally turned my stomach. And I don't understand how you could imagine that a, quote, entertainment-seeking public, American public, could be induced to watch this film. So that was one of the concerns. And there's also been a rumor that we've not been able to document that Conrad Adenauer, who was Germany's first post-war chancellor, democratically elected chancellor, had perhaps petitioned the State Department not to show the film because Nuremberg, its lesson for today, is a pretty damning indictment of certainly of the top Nazis who were prosecuted, but by extension, kind of the whole of the German people. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah. who 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 enabled them and who were complicit. Not everyone. There were plenty of resistors, sometimes passive and sometimes active, who paid the price with their lives. But it was a reign of terror and people people succumbed to it. And I think Adenauer and others, uh, even within the State Department, were afraid that if you showed this film across America to Americans in movie theaters, you would really turn them off to the idea of helping to rebuild Germany. Exactly. And that is very likely to have been true. So I can I can understand that concern. Yes, I can but too. But ultimately, I think that another big reason for it, and you know, I credit my colleague Professor John Barrett at St. John's uh, School of Law for finding what we consider to be the kind of smoking gun, the letter, the official letter from our Secretary of the Army at the time who controlled the film, Kenneth Royal writing to Justice Jackson, who'd obviously been lobbying to have the film released. And in this letter, he says, in my view, it is not in the interest of the army or our nation as a whole to have this, to release this film. So we will not be uh, showing it in theaters. He goes on to say that he does not object to it being seen by people who you know, need to see it for one reason or another. But we also know that Justice Jackson requested a copy to show to the New York Bar Association, and he was refused access to it. Sandra, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you, but our our time is up. I'm so sorry. You know, I I could go on and on and on and talk to you and hear more about this because it's such a fascinating film. But where can people see filmmakers for the prosecution? Well, I'm delighted to uh, that our partners at Kino Lorber are releasing the film in theaters starting this Friday at the Firehouse Cinema, Friday, uh, January 27. The Firehouse Cinema in New York. It's opening February 3 in Los Angeles in a number of theaters, and it's going 
on from there. And it, in some theaters, it will be shown side by side with with our restoration of my father's film about the trial, which is Nuremberg, it's right. lesson for today. And so love it's it. kind of the perfect entree to that. It to that is. Film. It, I think Kino Lover is, is putting out the DVD edition at the end of March. Wonderful. Well, everybody, please seek out um, Filmmakers for the Prosecution. Um, it's its message is more important today than ever. Um, it's interesting all these many years, what, 60, 70 years later, 80 years, um, how we are revisiting some of the many of the things that are in this. And it, it, there's some, yeah, it is hard to watch at times, but I agree. Sandra, what, a, what an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show. I appreciate you being here, and I wish you much success f- with Filmmakers for the Prosecution. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. To all my wonderful, loyal listeners, your love of film allows me to do what I do. If you want to support me, the best way to do that is to hit the subscribe button on the iHeart Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And of course, on YouTube. Subscribing matters. If you are feeling really compelled, I want to hear from you. Have a burning question, comment, or review? Drop me an email at thejampriceshow.com. Thank you for listening. Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show, all about movies.